Introduction, Part 8 of Commentary in the Gospel of John, Book 9, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Rev. Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 7. If ye had known me, ye would have known my Father also. Some may perchance say, and think that the Son is here speaking of his own accord, and at his own suggestion, but it is not so for he never uttered anything in an uncalled-for or merely casual way, though he does occasionally repeat himself in a most instructive manner, especially because of the utter inability of some to follow his teaching. But in the present instance his words are most profitable to us in connection with what he had said just before. For when Thomas questioned him, asking, whither wilt thou depart or how can we know the way if we know not whither thou wilt go he thereupon answered him most effectively in the words i am the way and the life and the truth and again no man cometh unto the father but by me thereby showing that if any one willed to know the way which would lead to eternal life he would strive with all diligence to know christ but since it was likely that some who had been trained in jewish rather than evangelic doctrine might suppose that a confession of faith in and a knowledge of one person only out of all was sufficient for a right belief and that it was needless to learn the doctrine concerning the holy and consubstantial trinity christ seems to absolutely exclude those who hold this opinion from a true knowledge concerning god unless they would also accept himself for it is through the son that we must draw near to god the father for any manner analogous to our acceptance of the offspring we shall arrive at our belief in the parent also for it is utterly impossible to doubt that a belief in the sonship of son as begotten of the essence of the father will certainly lead to a knowledge of the father according then to the simpler and more obvious interpretation he must be supposed to have spoken with this meaning but if any one believes that he is employing subtle ideas so as to penetrate to the very root of the whole matter he will find once more that the son is teaching truth the divine nature indeed is utterly incomprehensible by any human intellect and to claim for oneself to have fully discovered who and what in very essence the creator of the universe is would involve a display of absolute folly still it is not impossible for us though in a shadowy and uncertain manner to obtain some kind of knowledge by holding up as a mirror to our mind's eye the catalogue of divine attributes which are inherent by nature in the sun for from a knowledge of what christ is in himself and of the works he has wrought when he became incarnate as well as before his incarnation one might afterwards ascend by analogous reasoning to a contemplation of the father who begat him behold i pray thee the glory and the power that were his gaze on his authority that extended without hindrance over all tell me is there anything conceivable or inconceivable that he does not appear to have achieved with perfect success at his own free will both before and since his incarnation nay more 
he who showed himself to us so mighty by the evidence of his works says expressly i and the father are one and he that hath seen me hath seen the father we must therefore in reliance on what we have just quoted pass onward from the likeness to the archetype and from the very image to the full realization of him whom the very image represents we do not say as some of the heterodox would have us say that the son is fashioned after the father's likeness by means of certain attributes bestowed upon him from without nor even would we admit as some in error suppose that he is styled the image of god the father as possessing his glory his power and his wisdom although being himself really of a different nature these are the foolish babblings of the heretics sheer nonsense delicately veiled or rather absolute impiety designed according to their unholy and ungodly object to overthrow and destroy the doctrine of the son's consubstantiality with the father but christ is a son in very truth begotten ineffably and incomprehensibly of the essence of god the father and as such is the very image and likeness and effulgence of him bearing innate within himself the proper characteristics of his father's essence and possessing in all their beauty the attributes that are naturally the father's for we will not imitate the heretics in their extravagant madness and degrade our own minds to such a depth of foolishness as to say that christ in any respect differs from a being who is in very nature god or to deny that he is begotten of the essence of god the father and so refuse to attribute to him the glory of god neither would we allow that any nature which was created and brought into existence out of nothing could ever without undergoing change be endowed with the divine power and wisdom or ever be such as the divine and ineffable nature of god the father may be imagined to be for else what distinction could any longer exist between the creator and the creature or what could intervene or sever that is to say between the thing made and him who made it in regard to identity and essence for if a creature possesses glory and power and wisdom exactly to the same degree as god the father i should be utterly unable to say and i conceive the heretics would be in the same perplexity wherein god's superiority can possibly consist or how he can be greater than we or than his creature therefore we maintain that the son is in no wise fashioned so as to resemble the father by the addition of attributes from without nor is he like a representation in a picture adorned by us with merely ideal colors which gloss over and falsely indicate the royal dignity but he is truly the very image and likeness of his father displaying to us the father's nature in clearest light by the graces that are his own by nature and this is why christ pronounces it impossible for any to have fully known the father without first knowing himself that is the son and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him wonderful it seems to me is the gracious intention and the unspeakably profound purpose that underlies this saying also 
For after having just said, If ye had known me, ye would have known my Father also, and seeming thus to reproach his disciples for their ignorance of truths so essential, he immediately passes on to comfort them with the assurance, From henceforth ye know him and have seen him. For since they were destined to become rulers of the churches throughout the world, in obedience to the Saviour's commission, Go ye and make disciples of all nations. For this reason above all others, as I think, he first utters a most useful truth of universal reference to all time, that whosoever knoweth the Son will most assuredly also know God the Father of whom the Son is begotten. And then in his kindness he goes on to testify that his disciples possess this knowledge, not speaking at all by way of compliment, for he could never utter aught but truth, but inasmuch as they really knew him and had most fully acknowledged him. For that they knew and had believed that the Lord was really Son of God can by no means be a matter of doubt to right-minded persons. For how came it that Nathanael the Israelite, when he heard Christ say, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee, immediately put forth his full confession of faith, saying, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Moreover, when the sea was marvelously and supernaturally calmed, how was it that those who were in the ship worshipped him, saying, Truly thou art the Son of God? Will any one maintain that this saying was uttered by men who did not know that he was God and begotten of God the Father? Surely such an one would give a most convincing proof of his want of intelligence. When in the district of Caesarea Philippi they were asked by Christ himself, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Did not they first of all give the opinions of others? Some, they say, think thou art Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who they themselves said that he was, they shrank not from telling him plainly, all speaking by the mouth of their chief, and that was Peter, affirming positively, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet when Christ says, If ye had known me, ye would have known my Father also, do not suppose that the saying is uttered entirely for the sake of the disciples. It is rather a general declaration laid down for all, the holy disciples being taken as representatives of all mankind. Notice carefully, then, how clearly we shall find that they have not been ignorant that he is God and the Son of God. But when he spoke of himself as the way of God, then they did not understand what seemed to be spoken enigmatically, and this will comprise the full extent of any charge of ignorance that can be brought against them. For this reason surely, having briefly refuted the idea of their inability to understand what was told them indirectly, and then grounded on this a declaration affecting all men, teaching plainly that whosoever knows not the Son will also lose his knowledge of the Father. He then most justly testifies to the disciples' knowledge of him, inasmuch as they had already made open confession of their faith, 
and this he does in the words, From henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. And he uses the word henceforth, not with reference to that hour or that day on which he was uttering his teaching on these matters, but he uses the word in order to contrast with the days of the old and first dispensation, the new and recently arisen season of his own presence, whereby the knowledge of the Father as seen through the Son has been made clearer for all men throughout the world. Therefore also in the book of Psalms, as speaking to God the Father, he says, The knowledge of thee has been greatly magnified by me. For having seen the Son excelling in deeds incredibly marvelous, and with God-befitting authority easily accomplishing his own good pleasure, we have been led on thereby to accept in reverent admiration the knowledge of the Father, believing it to be no other than the knowledge of the Son who came forth from him. From henceforth, therefore, ye know him and have seen him. For through the Son we have been led, as I said just now, to know who the Father is, and not only have we known, but we have also beheld or seen. For knowledge indicates that mental contemplation at which one may very well arrive concerning the divine and ineffable nature that is above all, and through all, and in all. But to have seen the truth signifies the fulfillment of our knowledge by the vision of the miraculous works. For we have not simply known the bare fact that the Father is in his nature life, nor have we had within ourselves the knowledge of the matter ideally and theoretically only. We have seen the truth carried out by the Son, in giving life to the dead, and restoring to existence those who had seen corruption. We have not simply known the fact that the God and Father of all is in his nature life, and has the whole creation in subjection under his feet, and that he rules in sovereign authority over all things made by him, so that, as it is written, all his works shake and tremble at him. We have seen evidence of the truth in the action of the Son, when, in rebuking the sea and the winds, he said with all authority, Peace, be still. Since, therefore, he was intending to say that you have not only known, but have even seen the Father, he considered it essential to prefix the word henceforth. And why so? The reason was this. The law of Moses declared to the children of Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and never offered the doctrine concerning the Son to the men of old time. It was content with driving them away from the worship of many gods, and calling them to adore one and one only. But our Lord Jesus the Christ, by his incarnation, made known to us the Father through himself by many signs and mighty works and has shown that the nature of the Godhead which we believe to be contained in the Holy Trinity is in truth one. And so he does well to say, henceforth, on account of the imperfection of knowledge possessed by those who walk after the law, and order their lives in that system. And we must note well that in saying that he himself and not the Father has been seen, 
he in no way denies the real and individual existence of the God and Father from whom he is. Nor does he even say that he himself is the Father, inasmuch as he claims to have come to represent the Father's person. But since he is consubstantial with the Father, he says that his Father is seen in his person, just as if an ordinary man's son, wishing to indicate plainly the nature of his father, were to point to himself, and say to any chance inquirer in the matter, In me thou hast seen my father. Here again, however, the Godhead will entirely transcend the power of the example to illustrate. 8. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the father, and it sufficeth us. Philip is anxious to learn, but not very keen in that understanding which is adapted to divine vision, for else he would never have supposed it possible with bodily eyes to behold in its fullness the divine nature, in spite of the plain declaration of God, No man shall see my face and live. For even if God in days of old appeared to the saints, as the inspired scripture tells us, Yet no one, I think, would suppose that the divine nature was ever made manifest in its full perfection, but rather that it molded itself into that peculiar fashion of outward appearance which was more especially suitable for each occasion. For example, the prophets have seen him in different manners, and their description of God varies greatly. For Isaiah beheld him in one way, and Ezekiel again in a manner not resembling the wonder recorded in Isaiah. Philip, therefore, ought to have understood that it was absolutely impossible that he could see the divine essence in the flesh, and yet in no fleshly form, especially as it was far from wise, with the likeness and very exact image of God the Father present before his eyes, to seek to penetrate onward to the presence of the archetype as though it were not then visible before him and manifested in the most fitting manner. For surely the contemplation of Christ is most fully sufficient as a representation of the essence of God the Father, unfolding most beautifully and most exactly the marvelous grace of the kingly essence from which he was begotten. For the tree is known by its fruit, according to the saying of the Saviour himself. Seeing, therefore, that to one who is really thoughtful the contemplation of the Son suffices to represent to us in perfect fullness the nature of himself and of his Father, we may in all probability reckon the saying of the disciple as out of place, but still it will be found meet to be reckoned within the number of things that deserve the highest praise. For I think we must admire him, and that more than moderately, for saying, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. For it is as though he had said, We should acknowledge that we were in the enjoyment of every pleasure, and there would be nothing for us to seek to fill our cup of happiness, if we ourselves also were deemed worthy of the longed-for sight of God the Father. But a man who preferred to every blessing, and to everything that could be imagined to contribute to his pleasure, the sight of God the Father, would surely be acknowledged to be worthy of all admiration. In this sense, we shall understand the meaning in this passage, as I think, 
according to the obvious and simpler view taken by most men. But if it is needful to glance at a more elaborate sense, and perhaps to speak of some of the hidden meanings, we may suppose that Philip both spoke and also thought something on this wise. The leaders of the Jews, and besides them the scribes also and Pharisees, were stung to the quick by the Saviour's wondrous works, and pierced as by stones cast into their heart by his immeasurable proofs of divine power. They were bursting with jealousy, and knew that they were utterly powerless either to perform such wonders themselves, or to prevent him from working them. And so they cavilled at his miraculous acts, seeking to make light of his glory by deceitful words, and running up and down the whole territory of Judea and Jerusalem itself, they spread reports, at one time that he wrought his signs in the power of Beelzebub, at another time, in the fury of their uncontrollable madness, that he had a devil, and knew not what he said. For they kept rebuking the multitudes, saying, He hath a devil, and is mad, why hear ye him? Moreover, there was another plan of theirs, devised in an insufferable manner to ruin his good reputation. And what this was, I feel it my duty to explain. For they tried to persuade the people, as we showed just now, not to attend to our Saviour's discourses, but to desert his teaching as contrary to the law, hastening to avoid him as much as possible, and to adhere more firmly to the precepts given as from God by Moses. And on what grounds did they urge this? They said that the great Moses led forth the people of old to meet with God, as it is written and presented them at the Mount Sinai, showing to them God in the mountain, and preparing them to hear his words, and assuring them most fully and clearly that God was uttering the laws. Whereas Christ gave no such proofs of his authority, and did nothing at all of the like. And that this comparison was currently accepted among them thou wilt learn from hence. For thou wilt behold them saying to the man born blind, whom the Saviour healed by ineffable power, Thou art his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, for we know that God hath spoken unto Moses, but as for this man, we know not whence he is. Those, therefore, who were arguing with Jewish pleas considered that their argument on this head was difficult to meet, and impossible for most men to refute. And, as is probable, they did thereby confound and ensnare many. Bearing this in mind, and thinking that all the gainsaying of the Jews would be stopped if Christ himself also would show the Father to those who believe on him, Philip addresses him in the words, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. For conceive him to imply this much, all things, O Master, that are conducive to faith are affected by thy authority, and by wonders innumerable one might rebuke the immoderate extravagance of the Jewish gibings. But nothing whatever will fail us, if thou thyself wilt show forth to us God the Father. For this will be sufficient for thy disciples, so as to enable them in the future very successfully to arm themselves in defense with the very arguments of those who put forth the former objections.
By applying some such view as this to the passage before us, we shall, I think, succeed in arriving at the argument suitable to the occasion. For Philip himself invites her attention to this view of the case by saying, It sufficeth us to see God the Father, as though this and this alone were wanting to those who have believed. And the Saviour himself also may seem to suggest the same idea by saying in what follows, the words that I say unto you, I speak not from myself, but the Father abiding in me, he doeth the works. But the sense we should attribute to this saying will be explained not in the present, but in the more suitable and neighboring passage. End of Introduction, Part 8